How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 148 of X Lapsed. That milestone is quick approaching, ain't it? Uh, now, today we've got a very special book. It's Hellions Day, and we are going to be taking a look at Hellions issue number eight. Now, this had a March 2021 cover date. The story is called The Grinning Neonate. Hmm. Written by Zeb Wells, with art by Steven Segovia, colors by David Curiel, letters VCs Ariana Marr, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Amaro Basso White Sobolski, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale January 6th of 2021. Now, as is customary, we open with our mostly blank quote page. Again, it's from Nightcrawler. And you know... When Way of X was announced, I was a little bit nervous that it was going to be replacing Hellions, um, especially since this is, like, really the only book where we can count on getting at least a few words out of Nightcrawler. He usually just hangs out in the background and uh, smiles. Uh, looks, thankfully, like that's not the case, though. Hellions doesn't appear to be going anywhere. So we pick up right where we left off last issue. The Hellions are stood before Cameron Hodge and his right bots. And here Hodge talks a lot... Uh, He mentions being gifted with eternal life, to which Havoc reminds him that that gift was given to him by a crazy demon. This goes way back to uh, the first volume of X-Factor, back in the long ago. Wildchild and Nanny decide not to stick around for the Gospel of Hodge, and instead they blow right by in search of Nanny's ship. Undeterred but a bit annoyed, Hodge continues to pontificate. And I almost feel like he's might be getting kind of, sort of, conflated with uh, Reverend Stryker here a little bit. I mean, it's very, very churchy, and even Grey Crow makes a mention of how uh, how odd it is for uh, this to be, you know, quite so um, pious. Uh, from here, double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Uh, the characters we're going to be paying attention to are Havoc, Orphan Maker, despite not showing up in the issue, Nanny, Wildchild, Psylocke, Empath, Grey Crow, Sinister, and Hodge. I don't don't think Sinister shows up here either, but uh, what are you going to do? Back to comics, and as you might imagine, it's time to fight. Now, the Hellions stand their ground, except for Empath, who makes like a tree. Which, I mean, dude's got powers having to do with the mind and emotion, so... When you're faced off against robots with machine guns, I think I'd be running too. Uh, and this is like a cartoonishly funny bit, though. Uh, the only thing missing is like a wake of dust where he'd been standing. It's like, Nyoinky's gone. Uh, the right bots, which, as I was typing up these notes, I kept typing them as the right boys, um, they get the upper hand here pretty quick. Now, one has Psylocke in his crosshairs, about to take her out at point blank range, range when uh, he stops to rescan her. 
And the robot's confused. Uh, it says that uh, Quanan is not a mutant. Hmm. She does fall within the margin of error, though, and so it defers to Hodge for how it should proceed. Hodge naturally wants her killed. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, uh, this robotic deduction here uh, toward the end of the episode, because uh, there's a couple of different ways we can approach this, so we will look at that. Now, luckily... The time the robot wasted talking to Hodge was enough time for Grey Crow to recover and blast it to bits. Now we wind up with our Hellions A-Team and Havoc, Psylocke, and Grey Crow back to back to back as they're surrounded by Wrightbots. The scene shifts into the East Hangar where Wild Child and Nanny bust in and make embarrassingly short work of a couple more Wrightbots. They climb on board the Nanny, bo- the nanny ship here, uh, at which time Nanny is a bit surprised at something she's found. More on that in just a little bit. Back outside, uh, Stryker or Hodge or whoever this is, is uh, still pontificating. Uh, His right bots have nabbed the fleeing empath and they dump him on the ground before their leader. Empath here decides to swing for the fences before he gets offed, and so he attempts to get into Hodge's mind. Only to find that Hodge doesn't have a mind. You see, he's a robot as well. Now, as he's scanning, a right bot cracks the holy hell out of him, putting him down likely for good. We'll find out at the end of the issue if he survives or not. Uh, the right bots also, however, decide to scan Hodge, and just as Empath suggested, they deduce that he is, in fact, a robot. Hodge gets blasted by a bot, revealing him to be like a Terminator 2-looking machine man. He, he then explodes. Um, a right bot then looks at the Hellions and... Delivers one of the lines of the book The robot says Thank you, mutant scum Which, I mean, that's funny uh, Back inside, Nanny starts up her ship Wildchild asks what kept her But she doesn't say anything about what, what it is that she discovered Like I said, we are going to find out soon enough Wildchild then suggests that uh, Amenth probably isn't done with either of them to which Nanny agrees. You know, of course, this is a reference to the fact that they both died in a month and have been resurrected since, and uh, they're having weird feelings or, I guess, impulses that uh, the Amenthi demons, they're, they're going to be paying visits. Outside, Empath dies again. Um, he and Quentin Quire should really start keeping score or something. Uh, meanwhile, Havoc chats up a right bot, and it would appear as though the robots are starting to come around to the mutant scum. It even adjusts the value of mutant equals enemy to mutant equals friend. And then they deliver another very, very funny line here. We are family, mutant scum. It's a really funny. Alex's re- reaction here is also, like, perfect. It's great. And, you know, we talk a lot about how hard it is for comics to have comic timing. But time and again... This book absolutely nails it, and this is no exception. Now, we shift somewhere inside the facility where Psylocke is being psi-linked to Magneto, who gives them a final order for this mission. And that final order is... Kill all the robots. You see, Hodge's right bots are infected with the techno-organic virus, which allows them the ability to think and evolve. And, I mean, we did just see some of that evolution in how they changed their stance on the mutant scum, right? From enemy to friend. But we gotta remember Mora's future lives, where it's uh, the post-humans and the machines who ultimately win. 
So this is kind of a nip-it-in-the-bud sort of situation. Um, the law is here that no AI may flourish under the Quiet Council's watch. Grey Crow comes in at the tail end of Quinan's chat with Magneto, and they share a conversation regarding maybe the morality of what they've been tasked with doing. Now, Psylocke has been connected to a cloud server where she can procure a virus which will wipe out all the AI. Grey Crow offers, uh, you know, uh, who says chivalry's dead here? He offers to push the button, right? This way, it might assuage Quinan of any further guilt. She assures him that that is not a problem at this juncture and pushes the button herself. Back outside, Havoc is still chatting with a bot who actually refers to him as, quote, Friend Havoc. And and our man Alex is kind of taken aback by this. Unfortunately, it's a short-lived celebration because just then the virus hits and the robots perish. Now, the final words for the one that Havoc had been chatting with say, false value, mutant equals friend. So they were wrong all along. And this really, really gets to Alex. Now, we wrap up this issue with Nanny making a journal entry, which is uh, turns out to be narrating over this final scene. Gotta say, this is much better than just doing it as an info page, which I feel would be the go-to for many of these books. Now, Nanny mentions how upset Alex is about everything that went down, and how she might just have something that can make him smile again. But she doesn't trust him enough to show him. She then sneaks into another part of the ship where we see what she found stowed away when she boarded. And it's a, it's Baby Yoda. No, no, it's, it's a Baby Right Bot. It's kind of cute, and uh, I think this is going to be kind of interesting. We'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. Uh, we actually close out the issue with an info page all about the Hesoid Protocol. Hesiod? Hesiod. Maybe it's Hesiod. I didn't know what Hesiod was or is, so uh, I had to look it up. Hesiod was a Greek poet born in 750 BC whose work we might be tangentially familiar with as he was the earliest, as his was the earliest mention of Pandora's box, which is fitting. Now, the Hesiod protocol is the Krakoan protocol, which states that all AIs gotta go. So that's where we leave it. Next episode is the final Juggernaut editing, so we will wrap up the Nisiei Sagarni Juggernaut miniseries next time. But uh, let's talk about this one, because uh, I think we got some pretty interesting things to cover here. I do want to start by saying this Zeb Wells character can really break your heart, can he? I mean, here he is making us kind of feel bad for racist robots. (laughs) I mean... I actually felt like we lost something when they were taken out. How weird is that? Uh, Havoc's reaction to this was pretty amazing as well. And I'm not sure how much more this poor guy can take before he actually snaps. You know, he, he's been put on this team. And we saw him chatting with Emma last episode, or last issue of Hellions, where it was uh, we heard that there was problems with Havoc's mind, right? Here it almost feels like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, even if there was nothing wrong with Havoc's mind, by the end of this experience, there's gonna be. I mean, he's lost Madeline, he's got this robot who's sort of kind of his friend for a minute. It's uh, it's pretty wild, right? Let's keep on that track here, the whole no AI may flourish, right? We know why that's gotta be. We know what Mora saw, 
And Magneto and Xavier also know what Morris saw, so it stands to reason that they'd be quite wary of any techno-organic uprisings. Though, part of me wonders why they wouldn't be a little bit more proactive about this. You know, I mean, the Hellions didn't come here to wipe out the AI, right? They came here in order to get Nanny's ship so that she could craft a new armor for Orphan Maker before he's resurrected. They kind of just lucked into the fight with the Hodgebot in the right. I mean, I'm not sure why this major theme of Hoxpox is only being stumbled upon by accident rather than being an ongoing thing. You'd figure, like, Xavier and Magneto would be rooting out AI or potential AI uprisings here to nip them in the bud before they can become a thing, before they gather any steam. Here, it was just luck. It was happenstance that they that they happened across these right bots. Kind of weird, right? Um, and it makes you wonder, like, what exactly constitutes this AI that... Uh, that may flourish, you know? Are we going to be worrying about characters like Vision? You know, are we going to be worrying about uh, X-51? I mean, I don't know. I think that could be a slippery slope. I kind of hope not, because I really don't want this to be a huge Marvel thing, but uh, what are you going to do? We'll have to see when we get there, if we get there. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about No AI May Flourish here. Um, This time, let's talk about Apoth. We've been talking a little bit more about Apoth lately. I didn't know that we'd ever, ever talk about Apoth again. But uh, now we know that Quinan's daughter is is currently in the form of Data, right? And that Sinister has her and Apoth kind of squirreled away. This is very, very interesting because it shows us a bit more about why Psylocke is quite as subservient to him as she is, right? It's not that just that he's doing her a favor, I think up to this point we thought that, okay, he's just doing her a favor. It's more than that. It's that they're actively going against one of the Quiet Council's protocols here. And we got to assume that if the, if the QC were to find out about this, they probably wouldn't be all that happy. Now, this gives us a little bit more insight as to why Psylocke was so morally torn when it came to uploading the virus. Likely because that's the exact way her daughter, in her current form, would be taken out. This was really well done. Very, very subtle. You know, this was not beating us over the head with anything. It was just, it was just hesitation. And then, uh, I mean, there was a question here of Grey Crows, where he's like, okay, well, do we think of these AI as being alive? And Quinan says, well, yeah, I have to think that way. Doesn't beat us over the head with it, but we, you know, those of us who've been following along since Fallen Angels and into into the, uh, you know, Quanon sinister scenes we've had in this book, we kind of know what she's talking about, and it really, really makes, really, really makes the scene work. And I mean, I can't believe that the horrid and dull takeaway that we got from Fallen Angels uh, has been made into such a compelling piece of business in this book. So uh, this is a, a pleasant surprise. Now let's stick with Psylocke here. Something that we might have as a takeaway was when that right bot was unclear on whether or not she was actually a mutant. To which I guess there are a couple of ways for us to look at that, right? Um, First, I mean, the obvious one, Psylocke isn't a mutant. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that. Second, um, maybe it was just because there's very little difference between human and mutant, thus the robot was confused. 
Now, I think there's plenty of meat on both those bones. But, uh, I mean, the first one here, I'm not even sure how to begin theorizing that Quanan is somehow not a mutant. I mean, she once died of the legacy virus, and she can pass through Krokoan gateways. So I think if we're unmutantifying her, it's going to be a sticky, sticky mess, right? This isn't Franklin Richards, right? This is something a little bit stickier. So I guess we can assume that the robot was surprised at how little the difference in humans and mutants actually was, which probably led to the ease in which they uploaded or updated their records to list the mutant scum as friend rather than enemy. What else we got here? We got uh, Nanny and uh, Wild Child acting a little bit out of character, right? Uh, but with a purpose. With a purpose. They've been changed from their uh, their deaths on a month here, and... I can't believe it, but we're actually getting a uh, potential continuation of the Amenth storyline, and I'm not absolutely dreading it. Uh, I have all the faith in the world that uh, Zeb Wells and company can uh, make some lemonade out of this uh, overlong and bloated storyline that we uh, just finished up in Amenth, or with Amenth, or versus Amenth, or whatever it is. Um, Also, we have this uh, little AI baby, which... uh, I wonder what that's going to be all about. That's going to be very interesting to follow along here. Uh, I just uh, I'm seeing this is the third member of our uh, of our little mascot troop here. We get Jeff the Landshark, we get uh, Amazing Baby, and now we have the little uh, little smiley bot. So we'll uh, have our have ourselves a uh, a trio of silly little uh, mascots here that we can all fall in love with. So. Looking forward to seeing where this is going. Um, the work that's being done here with Alex, as I mentioned during the synopsis, it's really, really cool. Uh, we got this idea where he's mentally broken, but even if he weren't, the things he's going through as part of this team is breaking him mentally. So it's uh, really well done. Really well done. I'm glad that this book is in our lives here, and... Uh, I'm, as always, looking forward to the next one. I hope you are as well, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the issue. And with that, uh, let's hop into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Juggernaut number four. He says, I'm going to start by thanking both you and Evan for saying nice things about me in the feedback. I love the fact that we all get different things from reading the same comics. It's why I'm so keen to ensure that I read the comic before I listen to you. I want to notice my response and compare it to yours. Thank you for your sensitive response to my Fantastic Four rant. I would agree with you. I would also agree with you that they ruined the, the Twelve storyline, but it's not the first time Marvel's done that. Well, like I said uh, during that discussion here, it means the world to me that uh, that people engage in the uh, in the in our little mailbag here, and uh, sometimes we share personal things about our lives, and it, yeah, it really means a lot that uh, folks would do that here. It's not something I, I really expected, and uh, the fact that we are able to talk about this, and we are this kind of you know silly little book club book club family, easy for me to say. Uh, it really uh, it really does me a lot of good, a lot of good. Um, now Damien continues on to Juggernaut. I'm really enjoying this series. It's relatively simple, as it's just Juggernaut defeating an opponent and moving on to the next foe, but it's really well done. I'm loving the artwork, too. I've always liked Ron Garney, but I swear he's getting better issue by issue. And that's true here. This is a very different Ron Garney than we saw back, you know, even back turn of the century Uncanny X-Men. This is, uh... And he was great then. 
He, he, I mean, he was no slouch back then, but now it's, it's. I don't know. I think I feel like he's finding his style here, and it is a style that absolutely serves the uh, story that uh, Nicias is telling here with Juggernaut. As you said, it is relatively simple. It is um, very basic, you know, comics one hundred and one storytelling here. You beat the foe, you move to the next. But it's just, it's very, very well done. It's very fun, it's engaging, and it's different enough from the uh, the headier Hawks, Pox, Docs, Rock, Socks books where it's almost refreshing, you know, that it's just, okay, this is just a comic book, and it's being a comic book, and it's a lot of fun. Now, Damien continues, My only complaint is why use Arnim Zola if you're not following the Kirby design? I genuinely think the character is harmed by a more realistic redesign. I agree. I definitely agree with that. Um, I mean, Arnim Zola, no matter how you slice it, it's a silly-looking character. But as, you know, a comic book, it uh, you know, the Kirby design probably works best with the actual physical, really weird face in the stomach rather than just a uh, computer screen here, which in and of itself almost feels like a throwback to, like, 90s or turn-of-the-century comics where, you know, I think a lot of us decided we were too cool for that kind of stuff. And we were getting, like, these streamlined redesigns. I mean, the X-Men themselves took to several years of not wearing costumes. They were just in, like, black leather. You know, I think when I look at the Arnim Zola redesign, it looks... It doesn't look modern, you know? I mean, it looks modernized, but dated. Like, definitely a few fashion cycles ago, like... Like, remember when, like, the Vulture changes outfit and the Scorpion changes outfit? And it's like, you look at them and it's like, ugh, <laughs> what is that? Um, and even back in the day, we looked at them like, ugh, you know, what is that? But I wonder if that's kind of... I, I don't think this is intentional. I don't think it's an intentional commentary on on things here. But uh, that's that was my takeaway from it. And it's becoming more and more my takeaway the more I think about it. It just feels like a very... Uh, Outdated attempt at modernization Which may have been the whole point Overall, I don't know But uh, Damien wraps up with anyway Until the big bad is revealed to be the owl Make my next lapsed And uh, I probably don't need to explain that reference Do I? Probably not, but I, I do wonder how, uh, how the current year X-Books Would go if the owl and Genesis Had just uh, left To raise demons on a menth That could have been very, very interesting But uh, I want to thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts there on the Juggernaut and also the wonderful feedback here. So thank you, Damien. Next up, we're going to talk to Evan, who is talking about Sword, number one. Now, he says, I'd been looking forward to this title. I understand your issues with Ewing, which I wasn't initially familiar with. And uh, I've kind of beat around the bush about that. (laughs) I uh, I, I mean, I've, I've outright said... What my problem was with Ewing in as far as how he conducts himself or refuses to conduct himself on social media here. But I never really I never really expressed why it bothered me quite as much as it did uh, outside of, you know, just the very basic human decency and respecting your fans sort of thing. I, I had a problem with this because it kind of hit me a little close to home uh, through projection, pure projection, because, I mean, I haven't been in the, the same position he's been in, but... The way I look at it isn't so much as a fan. I try not to engage with any creators online because I want to stay a fan. 
You know, I like being a fan. I don't want to be an insider. I don't want to be chummy with Al Ewing or Jonathan Hickman or Teeny Howard or anybody. I want to just enjoy what they write. I've long said that we're getting a little too close to these uh, to these creators here, and it's uh, what is that? Uh, familiarity breeds contempt. So I, I try to not have any contempt. But the case with Ewing and his use of uh, Twitter blockchains to block people he's never had any contact with simply because of maybe somebody they follow, or maybe somebody whose uh, whose tweet they chose to like or share. That hit me as a content creator. And uh, don't get me wrong, I am a content creator and also a struggling content creator. I've been at this every single day for over five years, and I don't have the Marvel machine behind me. And I'm, I mean, I'm basically a vestigial limb of the X-Men podcasting community. <laughs> I don't know that I matter all that much. So, I mean, there isn't much impetus for people to follow and engage with me, but... I'm all about finding the one, right? Just finding the one new listener every once in a while, someone who will really enjoy what it is that we do here and what we what it is that we discuss here. And I want that person, say someone just stumbles across X-Lapsed or even a cosmic treadmill or a weird comics history, and they like the cut of my jib, you know, and they want to engage or they want to listen, and then they figure, oh, hey, at the end of the episode, he said he's on Twitter at Ace Comics, so maybe I'll check him out. And then I think, like, what would happen if they did? They looked me up, and they found out that I blocked them. Without ever talking to them, without ever knowing them. This is a person, uh, you know, a hypothetical person, who wants to engage with me because of the content I create. And for me to be so disrespectful as to just block them outright, maybe because they follow someone that I find inconvenient, or maybe they shared an idea that uh, was firmly outside my echo chamber. That would bother me. That that does bother me. And that's why when Ewing kind of hit it big with the Immortal Hulk and all the news was about the fact that people wanted to follow him because he works for Marvel, only to find out that they couldn't. And it's someone they, they never talked to, never had a crossword with. It strikes me as wildly disrespectful. And um, it's hard for me, and I mean, I like his writing. I mean, that's kind of like the weirdest part of all. I wanted to hate Sword Number 1. I wanted to rip it to shreds. I liked it. It is totally outside my wheelhouse, but I liked it. So Ewing is a talented guy. But I can't say it doesn't bother me that I'm, uh, that I'm you know, supporting him with my, with my I'm, you know, I'm voting with my wallet. For someone who uh, may not may not even pee on me if I was on fire, <laughs> you know, it's, it gets under my skin. So that is, uh, well, I guess, that's the the long the long scenic route for me to explain my issues with Ewing here. But Evan continues. He won me over a few years back when Mighty Avengers became roughly the 873rd ongoing Avengers book, with a cast of characters who, outside of the Superior Spider-Man and Luke Cage, held very little interest for me. Reading the trades through the library, I was hooked. I hunted down the back issues and started buying the series when it was relaunched less than two years later as Captain America and the Mighty Avengers. He split the cast after Secret Wars between New Avengers, which featured a lot of 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 that character work and humor that you saw in Sword, plus Squirrel Girl, and Ultimates, which featured a lot of that high-concept, make-your-head-hurt stuff that you saw in Sword. 
Well, this is kind of why I don't know a whole lot about Mr. Ewing here. That was during my my X and Marvel hiatus. I missed out on a lot of that. So he was one of the names that I'd heard a bit about while I was away. And unfortunately, I mean, as as our, you know, vaunted comics presses want to do, uh, all I heard was the sensationalized stuff like, hey, uh, if if you happen to follow Ethan Van Skyver, he's going to block you. <laughs> so that's all I really knew. I knew he was on various projects, and I, I probably would have been able to assume he was on an Avengers book since uh, I believe everybody was on one of those 873 Avengers books. But uh, it, it's good to hear that uh, this sword book is very much in the style of, uh, of his earlier work because I, yeah, I kind of dug this sword stuff. So uh, if this is the pattern of behavior that he has um, established as a storyteller, then uh, I am... Not quite as pessimistic as I was about Sword uh, a few weeks ago. Now, Evan wraps up with, Like you, I felt a little mixed on Sword number one, but I leaned positive. I have no clue what that triangle thing is, but if they explain it in the first arc, or at least acknowledge the re- that the reader doesn't know, I think I'll be okay with it. And what Evan's talking about there is uh, the, whole, the whole issue of Sword was based around a mission that this group called The Six was going to go on. We don't know exactly why they're doing it. That's, you know, that's still not revealed. But what they do is they they kind of just go into this ethereal place and they pull relics of some sort here. I mean, it's been it's been like a week since I read it and I've read a lot since then, so I don't really remember all of it. But uh what happened was uh Manifold came back and he's got this uh just this shape, this item. <laughs> we don't know what it is. But uh, like Evan, I agree. If they explain what it is in this first story arc, or at least assuage our doubts and reveal that we shouldn't know what it is, because when I see something like that and I don't know what it is, I automatically think that I just missed something. And um, if we find out that we didn't miss anything and we maybe even find out what it was, that's that's all the better. But uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts on uh, that potentially challenging issue and also for... Facilitating me sharing my uh, my Ewing woes. Next, we're going to wrap up with Andrew Franklin, who's talking about X Factor number five. He says, first, let me say that I agree with your rankings of the Wave Two number fives, and I won't be surprised if the number sixes are in the same order. X Factor getting the two spot over Cable solely because it's not an X of Swords crossover. And yeah, I think that's uh, probably about where we are. And I think I probably forgot to do our power rankings for the number sixes, didn't I? Yeah, well, maybe we'll do that next episode if I, uh, if I remember. <laughs> um, now, uh, Andrew continues. Now, because I can't organically fit this anywhere else, I was chatting at my local comic shop with one of the owners. We were talking about the X-Men. When I brought up Cable and how it's surprisingly very good, he told me that that surprised him because it's their lowest-selling X-Book by far. Which I can kind of understand since I, and you, and I assume many others, dismissed it out of hand before even reading it. Just something I thought was interesting, and now I think I need to vote with my dollars and start buying cable. And X-Factor while I'm at it. That's a great bit of information here, and believe it or not, you inspired the next segment that we're going to take a look at here after I'm done with the mailbag. Because uh, when you say something like that... And just getting like an anecdotal piece of information from a comic shop, I find that so helpful because we get we get very broad information from the comics news and from the industry and the companies themselves. Where I mean, a book 
that was released yesterday that you can still find dozens of copies of at every single store. We'll get a news item saying, hey, it's going to a second print. And you stop and you think, why? Why is this book going to second print when I can go to the store and buy 500 copies of the first print right now? We get very broad information. So it's when we talk to our local comic shop owner that we can actually get some actual boots-on-the-ground information and feedback, and we can analyze that feedback and understand, maybe get a maybe get a better measure of the health of the industry here without any kind of spin from people whose livelihoods def- depend on the sellability of the books that Marvel, DC, and the independents are absolutely cramming onto their shelves each and every week here. And you mentioned Cable being the lowest-selling one at this shop, and we're going to actually take a look at that after we're done with the mailbag here. We're going to take a look at the sales, because I haven't looked at the sales in years. So this is going to be a very interesting little bit here. But I think you're 100% right. Had I not been a completionist, and had I not been doing a program, an all-inclusive program, there's absolutely no way I'd have bought Cable. None, you know? Then again, I wouldn't have bought Hellions either. You know, I, I wouldn't have bought Marauders. It's, you know, we miss out on things like that. So it's totally understandable why some of these books might be lagging in the sales department. And we're going to see just how far they're lagging uh, in just a little bit. Now, Andrew continues. I thoroughly enjoyed this issue of X Factor, but that's probably why I don't have much to say about it. That's true. There's a warmness to this book that I can only contrast with the X-Men flagship book, which I find very cold and sterile. I finished the issue feeling very satisfied with what I had read. It was nice to have a quiet issue reconnecting with our cast after what feels like a very, very long time since we last saw them. While some of Leo Williams' millennial dialogue irks me, that's really just a me problem. That's an us problem, but yes, your point is well taken. Uh, Andrew continues... I do think she's a very good writer, and it may, and she makes these characters feel real. It was nice just reading our characters interact without too much plot getting in the way. And I agree, a hundred percent. Your first point about X-Men feeling very, very sterile and cold, totally true. Totally true. It, it's almost like a recitation of, of events rather than a story. When we get X-Men, it's like, it's the term paper. You know, it's not a narrative, it's a term paper. And, uh, and and I mean, sometimes when you read a term paper, it could be interesting, but usually the most interesting part of the citation, so you can go back and check things. X-Men doesn't bother with that. So it's uh, just a dry and, as you put it, a cold and almost aloof uh, recitation of events. Contrast that with several of the of other books in the line, including and especially X-Factor in this situation, There is a warmth there. There's heart. There's just... This book feels very lived in. You know, this isn't the term paper. This isn't a report. This is a story featuring characters who were were fallen for because they're really, really well done. The millennial stuff is very annoying, but that's just comics right now, unfortunately. I hate the the whole it is what it is sort of non-response, but I mean, that's all I can really say. It is what it is. I wish it wasn't there. I'd enjoy the book a lot more if it wasn't there, but I'm enjoying the book anyway. So it's it's an us problem, but uh, and I don't see it going anywhere. I mentioned how strange it was uh, that 
this X Factor book, despite being very millennial, very current year, is still somehow one of the more traditional books that we get on the shelves these days with very classic X-Men storytelling. And um, just the way the characters interact, it all feels very, very classic and traditional and can't not love it. Andrew continues, Two things that stuck out to me from this issue were Adam X and the anonymous email info page. Now, I don't care about Adam X, but I thought it was a bit icky that he'd be willing to shoot someone live on stream. I get that it was all part of the murky plan to get Windancer out of the mojo world, but he didn't seem to be too broken up over shooting this girl in the head for his audience. I can accept Wolverine killing Mora to reset reality. I can even accept someone like Wolverine or Domino giving someone a mercy killing if they were dying slowly of injuries. This, however, felt different. It felt more callous. Maybe I'm overthinking it. I don't think you are. I don't think you are, because this was, um, you know, this is, I, I felt very conflicted about that, that story beat, too. First, because, I mean, it's Adam X, and I think when we see Adam X, we're supposed to just go, ha, 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 90s. You know, we're not supposed to think of him as a character. We're supposed to think of him as, you know, Dan Cortese, the MTV sports guy, you know, with his backwards cap and uh, just being radical. And I think that's just supposed to be what what we think. Uh, and so anything he does is kind of predicated in uh, extreme 90s-ness and things that were really too smart for and too cool for in current year. I still didn't like the fact that he was okay with killing Windancer. I mean, he did offer her a way out. He did offer workarounds to kind of fool the cameras. But at the end of the day, and at the end of the segment, he shot an innocent girl in the head for uh, for likes and retweets. And uh, yeah, it, it, it did feel different. It did feel different here. I don't know if it was just a dismissal of 90s comics, because I feel like that's kind of his role, is to be pointed at and laughed at. But uh, yeah, it was a... It was callous, it was cold, it was weird And it's one of those things that You know me, I always worry about the toys getting broken It's uh, it's one of those situations where How do you walk this one back? You know, he did what he did And he did what he did for an audience I mean, I guess you could hand wave it all away If he shows up at the boneyard And Wind Dancer runs up and throws her arms around him And says, thank you so much for getting me out of Mojo World And and he shrugs it off, who knows uh, Maybe he Drinks a Mountain Dew and slams a slams a pog on the table. I don't know. Now Andrew wraps up with the info page was a chilling and disturbing account of abuse. All the more disturbing is the subject line quote Why didn't you just leave? Which tells me it's a preemptive answer to the inevitable question that is always asked to the survivors of an abusive relationship. On one hand, I'm intrigued with where this story will go and the mystery of who sent it. On the other hand, if they're going to tell a story about such a traumatic subject. I just really hope it's handled with care that these things often aren't. Well, here, here. Um, you know, I I don't even know that I read that info page. I may not have, because I'm really drawing a blank on it. But um, I'm going to have to dig out the book again to double-check here. But, yeah, this is a, if this is heading in that direction, because, I mean, just reading what you wrote here, there are parallels to that, because that is the question you get. You know, I did um, my undergrad in psychology, and a big part of that was trauma-informed care. And um, as such, I uh, sat in on a lot of support groups. 
And support groups are, uh, they're, I mean, they, they work for people. They don't work for some other people. We're all different. So sometimes a support group is exactly what you need. Sometimes it's not what you need. And sometimes it's kind of a, a form of like the, the hair of the dog that bit you, you know. A lot of times I would hear people talk about their relationships. Sometimes it was an abusive spouse. Sometimes it was a... Uh, Chemically dependent spouse And there would always be someone who would ask Why you didn't just leave Why why are you still there Why do you still put up with this And the answers you'd get The answers you'd hear from um, The person who was explaining the situation they, They'd vary But they would be similar in theme And uh, a lot of it has to do with You know, things like codependency Things like fear Things like uh, keeping up appearances There's all different reasons for that kind of thing So if what we're going to have here is is a story that veers into that territory That um, that could be a toughie And uh, that will have a, there, a lot of that will have to do with the subtlety and the sensitivity that uh, Williams takes with such a subject And I don't know Williams I don't know Leo Williams So I don't know her life experiences But uh, I, if we are going down this route I do hope that it is uh, treated with, uh, with, with care as, as Andrew put it here I guess uh, that'll be one of those things we wait and see But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on X Factor And also for facilitating this next little segment Which will have us taking a look at the most recent sales charts here Which, mm, it's October 2020 Which is like, what, six months ago? That's so strange uh, These are the most recent charts uh, available at Comicron.com And uh, Comicron.com was where where me and Reggie would always get our sales information here And uh, it's been a long time since I've been on this site and it's weird, it's changed quite a bit here It's changed in that, um, I mean DC changed distributors So it's going to be a little bit dicey to get everything where it needs to be Or you're cross-referencing a couple of sales charts We don't know how accurate either one of them are And here, it's strange We're not getting a like a whole number anymore Like it used to be, like, you know, X-Men number one sold... 100,057 copies It would be down to the actual number Now we get a range And I don't know why we get a range I have a few sneaking suspicions as to why we get a range uh, Some are more conspiratorial than others uh, I mean, on one hand, it could just be A matter of the cross-referencing here You know, they might not have accurate numbers For both sets of uh, sales and they need to kind of ballpark it as best as possible to keep all things equal, right? Or as equal as possible Another thing is, um, and I mean this was something that came up over the years Is that there are some books that uh, Marvel and DC want to keep publishing Despite the fact that they drop into dangerously low numbers You know, um, we, we don't get sales numbers on these charts We get shipped numbers So the numbers that we get are the a number of copies that get shipped to stores Whether or not those actually make their way to customers' hands And into, into you know, private long boxes That's a whole other thing altogether And, uh, you know, you'd see books get cancelled You'd see books like, oh, you'd find out that And we don't know what the, what the Mendoza line for uh, comics cancellation is in current year 
we hear stories from like the old timers, you know, the uh, John Burns and Jim Shooters who say like if it dipped under a hundred thousand copies, it would get canceled. Which, I mean, it was different times, of course. But here, I remember like not so much the confirmed line, but the one that everyone seemed to notice when books started getting canceled was sub twenty thousand. So anything that sells under twenty thousand copies would get canceled. And so when books would dip under, people would prepare for cancellation. But there were some books that Marvel and DC really, really wanted to put out. And uh, they would dip into the into the four figures. They would dip under 10,000 and they'd still get published or they'd get canceled and rebooted with a new number one immediately. And I wonder if this range might have something to do with not giving us all the information that we need here to maybe make it a little bit more ambiguous. But that is very conspiratorially minded And, uh, I mean, I, I really don't care one way or another <laughs> I'm reading the X books And that's really all I care about at the moment So, as I said, with all that out of the way Octo- October 2020 are the most recent So what we're going to do is take a look at September 2020 Then October 2020 So maybe we can see if there's any trends in the market because September was right before Exitens, October is right into Exitens. So maybe we can track this a little bit here. And over time, if we keep this little segment up, we, we should get some usable data. And like I said before, it's been years since I've tracked sales, um, which I guess probably makes me a very lax, fake-ass comics historian. But uh, we're going to write that wrong right now. We're going to start with September, the fourth highest-selling book was X of Swords creation number one. Now this sold somewhere between 115,000 and 140,000 copies, which that's a pretty big range. <laughs> um, uh, those are shipped numbers. I should I, I'm going to say sales, but it's anytime I say sales or sold, I mean shipped. So the fourth book of the of this month is X of Swords creation. Go down to number 13, and it's X-Men number 12, which shipped between 75,000 and 90,000 copies. The 19th best-selling book was Juggernaut number 1. What? Okay. Now, this one shipped between 67,500 and 80,000 copies. The 25th best-selling book was Wolverine number 5. It shipped between 60,000 and 72,000 copies. 27 was Giant Size X-Men Storm number 1. That one shipped 55,500 copies to 66,000 copies. X-Factor number 4. Now, there were two X-Factor books for the month of September. X-Factor number 4 was the 28th best-selling book with 50,000 to 60,000 copies. Now, this was the second issue of X-Factor this month, and this one... Is an X of Swords chapter Which is likely why it sold twice as many copies As the previous issue Which is way down the list But we will get there before long The 50th best-selling book Was Giant Size X-Men Cockrum Tribute Now this one sold between 33,000 and 39,000 copies The 51st best-selling book Well, Hellions number 4 Between same as, same as Giant Size X-Men here, between 33,000 and 39,000 copies. The 57th best-selling book was X-Force number 12. Now, this shipped between 20, 29,500 and 35,000 copies. Excalibur number 12 was the 58th 
highest-selling book, and it had the same ship numbers as X-Force. 68th best-selling book was Marauders number 12. Now, this one shipped between 27,000 and 32,000 copies. And it's with this one that I'm reminded what a bubble we're kind of in on this show because um, Marauders number 12, an important issue. This was the return of Call Me Kate, which, you know, I'm of two minds on this here because I love it when they do big things in a regular issue of a comic. You know, we didn't need the Kitty Pride one shot. We didn't need Giant Size X Men Captain Call Me Kate. We got new. We got Marauders number twelve where she comes back. But I can now see the wisdom in actually having a one shot, because I mean, look at the look at the one shot we have with Giant Size Storm here. It's old. Twice as many copies as Marauders And in Mar- and in Giant Size Storm Nothing happened But in Marauders we paid off a Like a six issue long uh, Dangling thread here With whether or not uh, Kitty could come back And nobody read it <laughs> I mean it's So weird because Like when we talked about that issue on the show It was just like okay this is a big issue Well the mainstream comics fan Did not give a crap as is evidenced by how many copies of this book shipped. Uh, let's keep going. The 72nd, 72 best-selling book was New Mutants number 12. This is the big docs issue. And this one shipped between 26,500 and 31,000 copies. Keep going down the list here. The 79th best-selling book was X-Factor number 3, which, like I said, sold like half as many copies as X-Factor number 4. 23,000 to 28,000 copies. Then, rounding us out, as Andrew told us here, with the 84th best-selling book of the month, Cable Number 4. It's shipped between 22,500 and 27,000 copies. So, those are our baseline numbers here. And uh, they're not... Great. <laughs> um, none of them were under that, you know, twenty thousand mark. Thankfully, so uh, I mean, cable, cable's on the precipice, and X Factor without the uh, X attends bump is also down there between twenty three and twenty eight thousand. Eh, I start to worry about anything that's under thirty because I feel like that's when we're going to start wrapping things up or winding things down. But um, I guess we'll wait and see. Let's wrap up with October. Let's take a look at October here. And the best-selling X-Men book was the 10th best-selling book of the month, and it was X-Men number 13. And this one shipped between 90,000 and 100,000 copies, which is a decent-sized gain, uh, almost definitely due to the X of 10's event. And that's something I'm going to be saying a lot, which is further evidence that we uh, we kind of lost the fight on uh, how we we always complain about events and how we have event fatigue. Well, we uh, we vote with our wallets, don't we? Uh, the eleventh best-selling book of the month is Wolverine number six. Now, this one shipped between eighty-five thousand and ninety-five thousand copies, so up from sixty to seventy-two to eighty-five to ninety-five. So another really really good gain, of course. All about the X Attends event. Um, the 19th best selling book of October was X of Swords Stasis Number 1. Now, this one shipped between 61,500 and 68,000 copies. 
And I guess we can call this a drop if we're comparing this to Exosword's creation, which, you know, that's a drop of between 50 and 65%. Now that sounds like a huge and steep fall, but it's sadly normal for a drop between a first and second issue. And this, my friends, is why the industry is still so gaga over number ones. Um, we vote with our wallets. Um, now, the 24th best-selling book is X-Force number 13. This one shipped between 48,000 and 53,000 copies. A sizable leap indeed, which is proof positive why the industry is still so gaga over bloated events. We're losing that fight, guys. Uh, the 27th best-selling book is Marauders number 13. This one shipped between 46,000 and 51,000 copies, which, I mean, enough said, right? Uh, the 28th best-selling book, New Mutants 13, shipped between 45,000 and 50,000. Another nice bump. 34th best-selling book, Excalibur 13. This one shipped between 42,000 and 47,000, which nearly doubles <laughs> the sales of its previous month counterpart. So yeah, event comics work. Uh, the 35th best-selling book, Hellions number 5. This one shipped between 41,500 and 46,000 copies. Another near doubling in sales. The X of 10's effect in full effect. Uh, the 57th best-selling book is Cable number 5. This one shipped between 32,500 and 36,000 copies, which it's an increase, but... Compared to the rest of these books, a downright pitiful one. I mean, it got a bump, but nothing nothing like the other books here. So that is kind of troubling, isn't it? Uh, the 75th best-selling book was Juggernaut number 2. I, that's totally expected. Uh, this one shipped between 27,000 and 30,000 copies, which is a huge, but, like I said, a completely expected drop. This is the second issue of a C-list characters miniseries. Uh, though, I mean, you might think that the Immortal Hulk appearance might have helped zhuzh the numbers a bit, but it didn't. It didn't at all. Now, rounding out our X-Book look is the 82nd best-selling book of the month, which was X of Swords Handbook, which I promise we're eventually going to get to. Uh, now, this one shipped between 24,000 and 26,000 copies, so... It's a handbook, it's overpriced, you don't get story in it. I think that's a good number for a book like that. That's not bad at all. So those are our sales numbers here. So, uh, I mean, what are our takeaways here? If I haven't mentioned them enough, <laughs> um, event comics work. So that's why we keep getting them. And number ones work, which is why we keep getting them as well. So... We lost this fight, but uh, we will continue following and tracking our sales numbers as they become available here. I'm waiting for the November numbers to come available at Comicron. I'll be checking it with regularity, and as soon as I know, we'll, we'll discuss them here on the show. Um, I'd like to know if you guys like this idea for a segment here, just to uh, keep uh, keep us apprised of everything that's going on here. So when when we find out that cable isn't long for the world, we're not uh, we're not taken by surprise. I mean, who knows? Fingers crossed that's not the case, but uh, we'll see what we see when we see it. But that'll do it for today. I'd love to hear your feedback here. If you'd uh, like to get a hold of me or connect with me, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. I haven't blocked you, I promise. And uh, you can give me a follow there as well, and we can chat 
about all the things. You can also shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. I'm in the middle of starting a uh, little side project for the blog here. I'm getting nostalgic for blogging. It's been a long time since I've actually done like a, like a Chris-style blog post, so I'm feeling a little homesick. So we're going we're gonna to do a little bit of uh, extra credit, uh, and I'll, I'll announce that when it's uh, closer to being ready, which shouldn't be very long. It's not all that involved. So uh, keep an eye on chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You may see something there that uh, well, probably won't surprise you, but you might, might find it interesting. Who knows? Maybe you won't. I don't know. But uh, if you want to chat us up on Facebook, you can join our ever-increasing group here, uh, 90s X-Men. We're getting new members with a little bit of regularity now. So thank you all so much for joining in the conversation. And I'm trying to be better about uh, being interesting there, or being interesting in general. Oh boy, if you'd like to listen to anything on the Chris and Reggie Radio Network channel thing, you could find us at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can even follow us on Podbean, I think. Um, you could find us on all your noise aggregation systems and applications. So, uh, well, you're listening now, so you probably already know that. But there are people who don't know that. So if you know anybody who might want to listen to this kind of blibble blabber, Please, spread the word. Do me that favor. Spread the word, share the show, and all that good stuff. But that is where I will stop talking for now. (laughs) I didn't think this one was going to go quite as long as it did, but it did. And I want to thank you all so much for spending this extended period of time with me today. It really, really means a lot to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya. See ya.